The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, we're going to be uh, looking at verses cha- uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 22. And the title of our time today, our thought folder for today, is Lessons from a Family of Faith. Lessons from a Family of Faith. And we're continuing to make our way through the book of Hebrews. And right now we are in Hebrews 11, which is a portion of scripture that is often called the hall of faith. How many of you guys have ever heard that term before? The hall of faith. That's Hebrews 11. And it's that whole chapter is just sort of successive stories of these heroes from the Old Testament and, and them exemplifying faith in God. Uh, It is called the Hall of Faith because the author of Hebrews is going to take his Hebrew audience, the people that he's writing to, through a sort of museum, if you will, of those that have trusted in God. And he starts with the creation account in the first couple of verses of the chapter, and then he begins making his way chronologically through the Old Testament characters. And he's doing this as a way to showcase the fact that faith, or another word for faith, trust, has always been the way that people pleased God and that people walked with God. So Hebrews 11 represents God's trophy room. And one of the things about the Bible that is so interesting is that God tells his own story to us through lives of real people who put their trust in him. And in our passage today, we get a case study on the topic of faith from one particular family. Now, I can't help but think how appropriate this is for Father's Day as we look at the family of Father Abraham. Now, Abraham, if you don't know this, gets called the father of faith in through the writings of Paul, the apostle. Paul wrote a letter to the church uh, at Rome, which was a church that was mixed with Jews and Gentiles in the same congregation. Um, And and he tells them something that would have been mind-blowing to them. In Romans 4, Paul tells them that Abraham believed God and that his belief, his trust in God, was accounted to him as righteousness and that this happened before he was circumcised. Now remember, circumcision was the marker of becoming the covenant people of God through Israel. And, and it was established through Abraham and, and that Abraham would be the, the father of, of many nations. And Paul is explaining to them that just as God promised... He is indeed the father of many nations, but not through his genetic line. He became a different type of father before he entered into the covenant of circumcision and started up the nation of Israel. He believed God and God accounted it to him as righteousness. So Paul explains that this was so that Abraham would be the father of many nations, just as God promised, not just by his genetic line, but by being an example of all those who would have faith in God and be declared righteous as a result. Everyone who has faith and is made righteous follows in the footsteps of Father Abraham. And in a matter of speaking, he is the father of faith to us all in being the first one who obtained explicitly in the scriptures righteousness that comes by faith. So here in Hebrews 11, we are going to look today at the father of faith and his family on Father's Day. The author will summarize the lives of four generations from this one family in our text today. He shows that each of the generations carried the baton of faith to successive generations that followed them. Each of these generations carried the baton of faith from the foundations, 
that they received within their family. Now keep in mind, the word faith is not just believing intellectually, but rather it's, it's a wholehearted trust in the character, in the nature of God that motivates obedient action in a response. It is trust in the person and the promises of God that leads a person to live in a certain way as a consequence. And so with that in mind, would you pray with me real quick before we begin? Father, we recognize as we come to your word and as we look at the story of Abraham that we all are presently walking out the story that you are telling through our lives. And and just like the original audience here, we need encouragement in our faith. We need moments of reminders where we we are called to put our trust in you and to respond to you in obedient actions as a result of that trust. So do that work by your spirit. Fill us afresh right now. Quiet all the noise in our minds and cause us to be focused upon the message of your word that we might receive its truth implanted in our hearts and that it might grow and bear fruit in the demonstrated actions of our lives. So meet us now, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'm going to give you a a quick outline that will be helpful to you if you're taking notes or if you're using the note app, the outline is already in there in our app today. Our outline takes place in four steps here. Verses 8 through 19, we see faith exemplified in Abraham and Sarah. Number two, in verses 20 to 21, we see faith exemplified in Isaac and and Jacob. Number three, in verse 22, we see faith exemplified in Joseph. And then number four, we're going to come back around and looking over those stories, we're going to draw application from the passage and talk about faith that is expressed by us. So Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8, Would you read with me? By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac, And Jacob heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
by faith. Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Faith. Faith is the topic at hand in our passage today. It's what we've been discussing over the last few weeks as Paul has been walking us through this chapter. And it's what we will continue to meditate on as we consider these Old Testament characters. Today I want to focus us in on each of the successive generations and and looking at them through this lens. So let's talk about Abraham first. Faith exemplified in Abraham and Sarah. In verse 8, if you read the verse there, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Notice, if you are a person that likes to underline or highlight, notice the word obeyed there. By faith, because of faith, Abraham responded in a certain way. What was that? He obeyed to the call to go out, even though he didn't have a clear destination in mind. Even though he didn't know where he was going. Because of Abraham's trust in God, he left Ur of the Chaldees, a city in Chaldea, and began living a nomadic life in the deserts of the land of promise. Now we know historically that Ur was a place of rampant idolatry. But in the midst of all of those false gods, Yahweh broke through to Abraham. Now we don't get all the details of how this happened. But Abraham and God became friends. Abraham heard the voice of God. Abraham hears God speak to him. Matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. We are told this by the scriptures in verses 1 through 4. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abraham went as the Lord told him. And Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now above all the other gods of this pagan city... Abraham hears the voice of Yahweh. Not only does he hear the voice of Yahweh, but he trusts him. He says, I I believe that you'll do what you say. I, I, I think that you're honest with me. And so he launches out without any knowledge of where he will land. Now this was a specific calling to Abraham to launch out and to step out, trusting God's character and nature. And it was a specific calling that God would use in Abraham's life to put him in a place of total dependence upon God for direction. So without seeing the full plan, with nothing but the promise of God to go on, Abraham responds with trust. He packs up his father, Terah, his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all that he owns, and he launches out into the unknown. His obedience to the call of God on his life was the result of trusting in the character of God and the promise of his word. Now for the original audience... 
this would hit home in a big way. You see, they too were waffling in their faith at the moment. That's the whole reason that the author of Hebrews is writing to them. They are suffering and, and there's been hardship in their lives. And they've endured these things, but it's left them longing to go back to the traditions of the Old Testament. Unsure of the future. And as a result, they've, they've been left feeling destabilized internally. And here, the author calls them to remember that faith has always been how God has led his people. That even though they don't know the outcome, that God's character and his nature is trustworthy. That right now, by, by living out the gospel, even the, though it is causing them to live uncomfortably, even though it is causing them to suffer, by living in light of the gospel, they are actually walking in the steps of their father Abraham by doing so. Faith has always been how God has led his people. Obedience and trust have always been their response. Even when they don't know the outcome. And so we see that faith motivated Abraham's obedience. Faith motivated Abraham's obedience. Because he trusted God, he took God at his word, and he responded by doing what God said. One of the greatest truths I've ever discovered in marriage is that it is impossible for a wife to submit to somebody that she doesn't trust. It is so difficult because if you don't believe that that person loves you, if you don't believe that that person has your best at heart, if you don't believe that that person is following the Lord, you are going to really struggle to trust their decisions. There's going to be a lot of fear attached to that. And this is why why our experience of God, our encounter with him through the scriptures, our experience of him in daily life, in conversation, in talking to him, is actually the fuel that enables our obedience because we grow in our trust for his character. Submission becomes easy when we are assured of the love of the person who has authority over us. But absolute authority without an environment of love is a fearful recipe. God has absolute authority and absolutely loves us. And the more we soak that in, the more we understand that, the more we trust in his character and his nature. Obedience becomes the next logical step, doesn't it? So by faith, Abraham launched out. Faith motivated Abraham's obedience. But not only that, in verses 9 and 10, we see that faith motivated Abraham's endurance, if you're taking notes. It motivated his endurance. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, it is one thing to launch out in faith. Matter of fact, there's a certain amount of excitement in launching out in faith. Whenever you start out on something new, there's sort of like this this dream of possibility and what might God do and and, and how wonderful could it be. But I'll, I'll tell you, after that electric feeling of being at the precipice of change or something hopeful begins to wear off, it is completely another thing to begin to walk that out over time. Once the adrenaline wears off, faith in that stage must move deeper than just the excitement of something hopeful or new. It must move to a place of trusting in what God has said over the long haul. I want you just to imagine for just a moment the kinds of conversations that Abraham and Sarah must have had while living in the desert. 
Let's, let's just picture, if you will, year 10, right? They moved from the city, from the land where everything is. They exchanged that for this nomadic life. No doubt Sarah could remember the markets in Ur of the Chaldees. The easy living of the urban lifestyle. No doubt she could remember the the joys of having a house instead of a tent. The peace and the security of going to sleep with the hum of people on the streets instead of this idea that every noise was a potential danger. It could be a, a wild animal or worse yet, it could be humans seeking to take advantage of their isolation in the desert. No doubt she could remember the, the fresh vegetables from the marketplace and the food in abundance and the ease with which she could find water. She could cook. She could bathe. Life was wonderful. Imagine the conversations and the tent at the end of days and sweltering heat as they're inside of a tent. How many of you guys have ever been in a tent in the summer, by the way? It's more like a sweat lodge, less like a tent, right? It's just baking in there, and here they are in the desert in these tents. Imagine the conversations at the end of the day in the sweltering heat. Remember, Abraham had God's personal revelation God had spoken to Abraham, but Sarah, it doesn't say anything about her receiving personal revelation. She is having to trust her husband. She's having to live with the hardship of everyday life in the desert based on Abraham's choice to obey God. How do you think those conversations went? Are you are you sure? When you say you heard God, was this like a voice in your head? You know, because sometimes we have internal dialogue. It's not easy to, what what, what was really going on there? You know, we have been out here a long time, a 10-year camping trip. This is, this is a very long time. I'm not, you said something about a city. One with foundations. I, I haven't seen a city in a very long time. A couple of goats, some shrubs, the occasional spring, no city to be found. Imagine the conversations that they had. Now the author of Hebrews inserts for us the reason that he chose this life of hardship. It tells us in our text here that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You know, the Bible opens with this beautiful garden in the book of Genesis and a tree of life and rivers that flow through that place. It was a place of refuge and fellowship for the people of God with Yahweh. And then the Bible bookends, it closes with another garden that is no longer just a a rural garden, but it is a garden city. The garden has now become a city and the tree of life is there and a river of life. There is no need for the sun because the glory of God is the light of that city. And the text tells us Abraham was looking for that city. He was looking for that place. And because he had set his sights on that city, the city of God, he endured all that life would throw at him in the desert. You see, For all of us, faith is not lived out only in the big moments, the radical things, the big things that happen, where we launch out and it's new and exciting. It's actually lived out in the small moments 
in life. Small acts of obedience over a long life. But what motivates our ability to endure when things don't go our way here on earth? It is the confidence that where God is really leading us is not to some temporary place of temporary pleasures here on earth. Rather, it is a place of eternal satisfaction in his presence. It is the city of God and the presence of God, and it is forever. Abraham endured because he set his sights on this eternal destination. And the author meant this to be an encouragement to his, his original readers. Keep going. Keep taking steps of faith. Keep trusting the word of God. You can do this. Keep walking this out over the course of a lifetime. Little steps of obedience again and again. The buzz of new salvation has washed away. And now you are in the middle here and you're walking this out step by step. Don't lose heart. The city is in front of you. Trust it. Trust the one who promised. The author of Hebrews meant that for encouragement for his original readers, but isn't that encouragement for you and me? There's those big exciting moments like the day you get saved or the day of your baptism or those moments where God comes through in a big way and there's a, a miraculous healing or, or something amazing that the Lord does in your life and he leads you in some way, he speaks so clearly. But there are also moments in the life of faith where you have to walk out what God has said in a time past and you faithfully trust him at his word and you choose that long obedience in the same direction. Faith is not one in the big moments, it's one in the small ones, the daily acts of obedience. Third thing I want you to see here is that faith motivated Sarah's confidence. It motivated Sarah's confidence. Notice verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore now these verses here kind of make me chuckle every time i read them Genesis chapter 12 begins the story of Abraham. Then, at that time, he was called Abram, and his barren wife, Sarah. And verses 1 through 4, of course, record for us God's first words to him about a homeland for his offspring. And even though the, the gift of a son is not directly mentioned in those first four verses, it's implied that he will have children. God hinted at his plan for Abram. And Abram was 75 years old when he first received this promise. And then in Genesis chapter 21, verse 5, it tells us that he was 100 years old when Isaac was finally born. Sarah herself, his wife, was 90, 10 years younger than him. So Abraham and Sarah waited for 25 years for God to fulfill his promise. 25 years. That's a long time. So here's what makes me chuckle about this passage. When Sarah receives word from God that she will be pregnant in the next year, she laughs. I, we, we get this story about her laughing from Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, let me read to you what the story tells us. 
the angel of the Lord is talking to Abraham, makes this promise that within a year she will bear a child. They said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So she's at the door, just kind of like tuning in, right? And she hears this promise that's made. And it says, the the text inserts this kind of coldly. In verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. And the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That means that she had gone through the change of life, right? And it wasn't even a thought or a possibility or a consideration that this could happen that she would bear a child. And so, Sarah, thinking about this and hearing the promise, she laughs. (laughs) She's like, (laughs) what? Listen to what she says. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Shall I indeed bear a child now and say, now shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I, I, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he looked at her and said, no, but you did laugh. So now the text tells us some of her internal dialogue in the process. She hears, she hears the promise. She thinks to herself, I, I, I am 90 years old. Uh, my husband is 100. We haven't even thought about trying to have a baby. And the, the author of Hebrews kind of makes it worse in the text, doesn't he? He accentuates it even more. He says, and Abraham, as good as dead. (laughs) Right? Like, okay, thanks for the vote of confidence there. You see, here's the deal. Here's what the author is expressing, what's what's, what's sort of couched in some of the language in the innuendo here, is that Abraham was the poster child for a guy that needed to write down the number in response to one of those commercials on TV for the little blue pill. But after hearing the seriousness of the one who promised, even though she knew that about her husband, the text tells us this. She considered him faithful who had promised. And she took on the task of baby making. The word of God was just what she needed to take obedient action that led to miraculous results. Now, it's easy to sort of just see the humor that's in here, but I want you to think about the reality. Anybody who's struggled with infertility or has lost babies through miscarriages knows the deep sorrow and the heartache that comes with trying again and again only to be disappointed and getting your hopes up and having them dashed again and again and again and again and again over a lifetime for Abraham and Sarah. Their entire lives together, that was their experience. How many years had they tried to have kids and failed? How much disappointment had she suffered over the course of her life. But something changed for her. In her mind, game over, the way of women has passed. And there's there's not even a chance for me to have a baby. I'm 90 years old. My husband's 100. There's no way. She doesn't even have confidence to try. 
but then she hears the word of God. She hears the promise of God. And she considers in her mind, even though it makes her laugh, it makes her chuckle, and she can't believe that that's possible, she hears it and she considers him faithful who promised. And she gained the confidence to try again. To take another step of obedience and to trust God with the results. Faith, trust in the character and nature of God motivates in her confidence. Next, I want you to see in verses 13 through 16 that faith motivated their resistance. Faith motivated their resistance. Let me read those verses to you. These all died in faith. Talking about not only Abraham and Sarah, but the people that were mentioned from before, like Abraham and Abel and Enoch and Noah. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Okay, I want you to hear this. All these people believe something. They trusted the character and nature of God. They believed in this eternal place that God had prepared for them. And they died. They died believing it. That's it. End of story. They trusted God until they died. And this is, this is how it manifested in their lives. They never found a home on earth. There was never a place where they could really sink their roots in and go, ah, this is a place of permanence. Because in their minds, God had promised them a city that had foundations, whose builder, whose designer, whose maker was God. They had set their hopes on something that was eternal, and so the things that were temporary could never tie them down. And they lived like that their entire lives until they died, never actually having seen the city. They died this way. Trusting God means that there was no place on earth where they would be able to settle in with finality. And they resisted the temptation to sink their roots into the temporary things of this earth. Because they had set their hopes on the things that were eternal. What a word of encouragement. Listen. The pressure of this life for you and for me is to sink your roots in here. Everything about our own sensory perception about this world is telling us this is all that there is. So get what you need. Get what you want. Prepare for life here. Put your hopes here. Aim for that retirement. Get the American dream. Everything is pulling at us and, and trying to get us to grab a hold of what is temporary. And faith pulls us into a position of resistance. It says, no, I, I can't believe two things that are opposing at the same time. God says he made for me a city that has foundations that are eternal, where all enjoy his presence forever. This place can never be my home. It can never be my home. And guys, we get it confused all the time, don't we? We get it confused in the political realm. We're like, no, we have to make America great again. Listen, 
America is temporary. It has, it's never been eternal. It wasn't here 200 years ago. It's a temporary place. We are not living as citizens. We are living as strangers and exiles in the world. It's not our homeland. So our hope isn't in the government getting fixed or balancing the budget or who gets elected next. Our hope is in the eternal dwelling place of God. Our security doesn't come from the ups and downs of the economy and whether or not our stocks will remain so that our our retirement pans out the way that we want it to or whether or not we've obtained the American dream. Our hope rests on things that are eternal and immovable, set in the heavens. And those things are anchored in such a way that the rope of faith has lassoed our lives and is dragging us forward into eternity. We live resistant to the temptation to settle in to the things that are temporary because we've set our hope on the things that are eternal. What a word of encouragement to these weary Hebrews who received this letter and what a word of encouragement to us who live in a world that is constantly bombarding us with the message that satisfaction can be found in the things that are temporary. Next, I want you to see that faith motivated Abraham's reverence. His reverence. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 19, And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which figure it will be speaking, he did receive him back. Okay. Would you notice the logic of Abraham in the story? It just spells it out for us. From Genesis chapter 22, the story where Abraham takes his son Isaac up to the mountain to offer him on an altar to the Lord. He knew that Isaac was the one whom... God had promised that through him, all of his descendants would come. Not through Ishmael. He knew it was through Isaac. So Abraham's thinking. It's like, God said, offer Isaac on an altar to him in worship. But God also said that in Isaac would all the nations be blessed. That in Isaac would all my descendants come. How can that happen if I offer Isaac on an altar? I I guess the only way that, because I know God's not a liar, the only way that both things can be true is that even if I kill Isaac, God's plan is to raise him from the dead. Wow! Do you see how logical that was in his mind? It's like, okay, God is not a liar. He promised it was in Isaac. Now he's asking me to offer Isaac. But I know that my descendants are coming through Isaac. Therefore, God must be ready and willing to raise him from the dead after he's offered up in worship to him. And he trusts God. He believes God. And he makes good on his promise. He takes his son and fire and wood, and he builds an altar, and he lays his son on the altar, no doubt with tears, no doubt with anguish, no doubt with fear and trepidation. He raises the knife, and God says, no, 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 wait. I've got a better plan. Let me give my son. In this moment, Abraham's obedience becomes this incredible picture of the love of the Father for the world. And Abraham saw the heart of God in that moment, understood the sacrifice of God. I mean, you think about whatever threshold that is that you have to cross to trust God that way. When you're standing there with the knife in your hand, you're thinking about the consequences of all that's coming. What if I'm wrong? 
What if this doesn't work out? What if God doesn't raise him from the dead? You're thinking about and you're processing all of that. In that moment, what is happening in the heart of Abraham is the closest anyone can come to understanding what kind of sacrifice was in the heart of the father and as he sent his son into the world to die on our behalf. It's an incredible moment of faith. And in that connection, an understanding of the heart of God was imparted to Abraham in a unique way that you can only understand by experience. When you have to lay the thing you treasure down. Faith, confidence in God, motivated the logical process in Abraham's mind and led him to a place of revering God even more, identifying and knowing God deeper, identifying with and knowing God deeper through what he walked through on Mount Moriah on that day. So Abraham obeys. He has faith ultimately in the ability of God to even raise the dead. Faith now exemplified in Isaac and Jacob. I'm going to go through these quickly because we're short on time here. In verse 20, it says, Faith motivated Isaac's expectation. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. You see, Isaac, the son of Abraham, his entire life was framed by the promise that God would establish the nations through his offspring through Isaac's descendants. It was the culture that surrounded his very life. It was what he, the story that he grew up in was this idea that, that God would, would take Abraham and give him a son and that through his son, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He grew up hearing that, was being rehearsed. And so when he had sons of his own, he laid his hands upon them and pronounced blessing upon them, believing that this was the fulfillment of what God had promised. He invoked future blessings on Jacob and on Esau. Now, he had intended to bless Esau first, but Jacob, of course, swindled him out of that. But Isaac so believed the promises that he inherited that he passed them down to his children. It motivated, faith motivated in him an expectation that God would fulfill what he promised he would fulfill. And that he was beginning to see those promises come to pass. Then verse 21, faith motivated Jacob's dependence. Jacob's dependence. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, Jacob carries forth the blessings onto his grandchildren. So Jacob was blessed by Isaac. Then Jacob, at the moment of, uh, of blessing his grandkids, he reflects upon the reverse order in which he obtained the blessing that Esau did not. And, and in thinking about that, he's, he sees God's hand over his life in that moment. So when he goes to bless his grandchildren, Jacob switches his hands and gives the blessing of the firstborn to the, the younger brother. And Hebrews tells us that he did this leaning on his staff. And this is such a curious detail for the author to record. But he is pointing out another reality from Jacob's life. A lesson where he learned not through blessing, but through pain. Perhaps you remember that story where Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord all night and he cries out saying, what? Bless me. I won't let you go unless you bless me. And in that moment, the angel reaches down, touches Jacob's thigh and his hip goes out of joint. And apparently, Jacob walked with a limp 
for the rest of his life. He's pictured it from that point forward in the scriptures as having to lean on a staff. And this became something of a legend in Israel's history. Matter of fact, they had this tradition where they wouldn't eat the, the hollow of the thigh of, of, of a lamb that had been killed because it was a way of commemorating this moment of brokenness in Jacob's life. It was something to commemorate. Now, don't, don't skip past this too quickly. His most painful moment with God became legendary because of what it produced in him. It produced dependence. Jacob leaning on his staff became a symbol of having to depend on God because of the brokenness that he introduced into his life. So Jacob, in the moment where he goes to bless his grandsons, he's reflecting from leaning on the staff from the pain in his hips still. And he's thinking about blessing his grandkids here. And while he does that, leaning on his staff to do an old injury at the hands of God, in that moment, he switches his hands as if to say, God, your ways are not our ways, but you always do things right. The blessings and the brokenness of my life are both true, are both true, and may they be true for my grandsons as well. May my experience of you, my trust in you, my brokenness that has caused me to depend on you be the encounter that they have as well. And he switches his hands. Bless them, Father, in the way that you have blessed me. What a beautiful picture. Lastly, we see faith exemplified in Joseph. Faith motivated Joseph's hopeful inheritance. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Joseph comes to the end of his life. He's like, God promised we would live in the land of promise. He, this inheritance, it's ours. He promised it to us. He said that we would be in Egypt. He led us here. He, we're now here. That must mean God's going to return us. And I'm probably not going to see it in my lifetime. I'm probably going to die here in Egypt. But I believe the promise of God. So here's my instructions. Take up my bones. Put them in a box. And when you guys finally get to leave here, take me with you. I want my bones to dwell in the place that God promised. Imagine the faith of Joseph with me for just a moment. I know God has placed a promise on my family and God is faithful. We're going to the land that he has promised. I probably won't get to see it in my lifetime. So when I die, save my bones to take with you. What faith. His hopeful inheritance were the things that God promised. Four parts of application for this final little piece here. Faith expressed by us. This is the application for us today. First of all, what do we learn from these families, from the families of faith? What are the lessons from the families of faith, this family of faith? First of all, faith anchors us in all seasons. Faith anchors us in all seasons. Each person trusted God beyond what they saw, beyond their, their present circumstance, beyond their present trial. They believed and trusted God. Faith anchors us in all seasons. Second thing, God calls us to invest beyond our life. Each person from this passage, from this family of faith, was motivated to trust God for something that they would never see in their lifetime. They were called to place their hope in something that they would never see. For the original audience, this was received as encouragement to face the present struggles with the hope of the new Jerusalem in the future and ever before them. And the author is telling them that not having a home in this world is part of faith. An aspect of faith that we all have to embrace is what you might call holy discontentment. It's this idea that that this world is never going to be my home. I'm always just a little bit uncomfortable here because my home is set on eternity. I love how John Piper puts this in, this truth. He says, 
Jesus Christ did not come into the world to assist you in obtaining the desires that you already had before being born again. Can we hear that again? We need to hear this again. You ready? Jesus Christ did not come into the world to assist you in obtaining the desires that you already had before being born again. He came into the world to change your desires so that he is the main one. That's what a life of faith leads to. For the original audience and for us, there's this reminder to not let our roots sink too deeply into this world as it is now. We're encouraged to put our hope in the one who redeems it all and will one day make everything that has been broken mended everything that is sad to become untrue. Third thing, faith that is messy is still faith. Listen, a life of faith is not a straight line. Uh, what we get here in this passage from the, these characters in the book of Genesis is the highlights reel from the lives of this family here in this passage. But when you look at the original stories from Genesis, Genesis it looks a lot messier than that, doesn't it? You know, how many of you guys remember our origin series? How messed up these families were, right? They were jacked up. Abraham didn't go in a straight line to the promised land. He, he stopped in Haran until his father Terah died. He believed God for a promised son, but when God didn't meet his timeline, he had Ishmael. And Sarah is the one who initiated that. Abraham was afraid of the people around him, so he lied about his wife, and he ends up getting her taken away, and Isaac follows suit. He follows in his father's footsteps, not only with faith, but also in having favorites in his family, also about lying about his wife. Lying was this useful tool he picked up from his dad. Jacob also follows suit, becomes a liar, a manipulative cheat. He has a super dysfunctional family. His sons fake the death of their brother. Joseph and sold him as a slave into a foreign land. Joseph was young and prideful. Instead of, producing hu the, instead of the dreams that God gave him producing humility, they became an occasion for him to brag over his brothers. There were, there were moments, no doubt, long seasons in Joseph's life where he felt abandoned by God, separated from his family. At times he wanted revenge on his brothers and he even took steps to act on it. But listen, the New Testament doesn't record any of that. It doesn't record any of it. It's almost as if their lives are viewed through the lens of the cross. Listen, faith that is messy is still faith. Where you take off doesn't matter as much as where you land. In moments of failure, remember that receiving God's grace and repenting is still an act of faith. In moments of doubt and weakness, come back to trusting God. And if you do, it's counted as a win and not a loss. Lastly, and this is for Father's Day, faith is a family affair. God tells his stories through lives. If you were to ask these patriarchs, these matriarchs, what it felt like, to leave behind such a legacy of faith, something tells me they wouldn't see their lives as triumphant. Not in the same way that the book of Hebrews describes it. Instead, they might, they might recount the long years of waiting on God to fulfill his promises, the moments of failure, the ways that God brought them through the failures. Their trophies of faith were lived out in, through decisions that were made over a lifetime and in everyday situations. See, here's... The thing about passing on a legacy, a legacy of faith, and pay attention to this, dads. We are always leaving behind a legacy. Our everyday decisions and the motivations for why we make them are the example we leave behind to our families. We have to make decisions, you and I, to keep coming back to trusting God, no matter the outcome. You're not going to get it right every time. You're not going to be perfect. But no matter where you take off, make sure you land on trusting the heart and the character of God. And that will leave behind a legacy of faith. Amen.
Father, thank you for your word. I know that we are tight on time here and I'm, I'm having to rush through some of the notes, but God, I just pray that you would take these words, that you would use them for your glory among your people. That today on Father's Day, as we consider this family of faith and the lessons that we learn from them, God, would you pour out upon us your encouragement? Would you stir up faith in us, a faith that endures, a faith that obeys, a faith that puts all of its hope in our future inheritance, a faith that walks it out faithfully over time. Encourage and strengthen us for your namesake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.